I'm Aaron Good, and today we're talking about the Nord Stream bombing with Jeffrey Brodsky and Bryce Green. Jeffrey Brodsky is the only reporter to visit all four blast sites of the Nord Stream sabotage. He writes the Un Americano and España column for Diario 16. His writing has appeared in magazines and newspapers in the U.S. and Europe. We'll put links to his substack in the show notes, including a link to his latest piece, Lab analysis does not detect explosives used in Nord Stream sabotage. Did someone clean up the crime scene? Our other guest is a returning one. Bryce Green is a graduate student in my beloved former home of Bloomington, Indiana. He writes regularly for FAIR, Fairness and Accuracy in Media. He recently went to the UN to brief the Security Council on the Nord Stream bombing. I will link to some of his articles in the show notes, including his Substack article, my briefing to the United Nations Security Council on the Nord Stream pipeline attack. Jeffrey Brodsky, thank you for joining us today. Happy to be here. And Bryce Green, it's great to have you back to talk with us about the Nord Stream today. Glad to be back. So, Jeffrey, you have uh, written some pieces now, and I think that there's more coming based on your investigations of the Nord Stream bombing sites. Can you give us some background into how you started to uh, look into this event and uh, what, how, the investig- how your, your expeditions have, have gone uh, out there? Um. Well, um, I don't have a, you know, a, a background in journalism, but when this, when this, when the sabotage took place on September 26th, um, 2022, um, I think like a lot of other people just thought that this was a major event. Um, and now we turn out, it turns out that, you know, it is probably the, you know, most severe act of industrial sabotage, perhaps in history. Um, it's a, been a, it's a huge ecological disaster as well. Um, and it is one of the geopolitical mysteries, um, perhaps of the century. Um, so I was, you know, somewhat taken aback and I would say unsurprised, but very disappointed in the, in the mainstream media that they didn't seem to be really asking tough questions about this, investigating this. Um, and actually I stumbled upon one of Bryce's pieces, um, for, for, uh, unfair.org. And he wrote a, an article about, you know, the framing and the gatekeeping, um, that the, that the mainstream media was engaging in, um, with their with their reporting on Nord Stream, and I thought to myself, you know, this is a huge global crime, and if no one's really going to take it seriously, and I'm going to ask some tough questions, and I'm going to read everything I can about it and educate myself, and try to find some sources and see um, what I can learn about it and what I could write about it. So that's really kind of how my interest sparked. Okay, and now you, um, unlike people like me, and presumably 
Bryce. Bryce, I, I don't think you have any Frogman gear uh, as part of your... I don't think Fair equips you that way. Uh, we just oh, look at these things on, a, on the internet. I know they have a special operations unit, so I don't want to get you in any trouble here. <laughs> but um, you, you, you've actually been out there. So how did you, uh, how did you organize and, and, and carry out these uh, actual... Uh, ex these invest this investigation like on on the site i mean how did you did you hire divers and uh, how well, um, uh, how were you able to set this up okay so um i didn't set it up myself personally here here's what happened um so i had been um working for a magazine called in these times and i published one article with them about um about the sabotage and then i had just been you know continued my investigation and talked to a lot of um members of the German parliament, um, members of the European parliament. Um, I spoke to Jeffrey Sachs, um, other people that were you know, interested in this and talking about this, both politicians, researchers, um, professors, intellectuals, et cetera. And I happened to run, uh, come across a Twitter account, and this was Eric Anderson's Twitter account. And I saw that he was asking um, very detailed questions about the sabotage. And he, what he was saying really caught my attention. So I contacted him on Twitter. And then we started talking and we had you know, several private conversations. And I was saying some things, um, giving us information that he had never heard about. And he was saying some things to me that I had never heard about. And so I had some unique angles and he had some unique angles. And then he told me, he said, Jeffrey, I've actually chartered a boat and I bought a drone and on the boat, uh, the boat is equipped with a sonar device. And if you'd like, you can come on the boat. And it's at this time, I was working for um, not in these times, but a different media organization, and they funded me to go on the expedition. Um, and we visited all four, bla four blast sites. Um, and therefore, I think I'm the only member of, uh, of the media to go to all four blast sites. And we were able to capture underwater drone images, and videos and sonar images of all four blast sites. Um, and we made those public, um, and they had never been seen by public uh, by the public before. So I did not um, pay for the boat. I didn't pay to charter the boat, um, so I was invited to go as a as a member of the media. Well, that sounds like you were very uh, opportunistic and resourceful there, which is probably something that you need to be if you don't have a huge budget or you're independently wealthy yourself. You uh, found someone else who was interested in doing this. Where Eric Anderson? I'm wondering if I is he an older fellow with uh, gray hair, kind of longer hair. I'm not longer uh, hair, but he, he's a, he's I believe he's 62 years old. He's in uh, okay. He, he's yeah, yeah, a, that's what I mean. He's a, he's like, a retired engineer. Um, yeah, he's from yeah. Sweden. Um, he's also yeah. an entrepreneur and independently wealthy, and he he okay. was able to do this. Okay, because I I'm friends with someone on Facebook named Eric Anderson. I'm wondering if it's the same guy, uh, because he is political, and it it conceivably could be the same the same fellow, but. That's interesting that you were able to uh, pull get this pulled off because you know nobody else has has done it. Uh, so it's funny that it falls to you. I'm sure you had to be kind of amazed by it in a way, but it actually speaks to how much they've neglected this story. Um, can you explain the the fact that these are four blast sites? I mean, the way I think the common perception of, for people, at least it was for me, I didn't really think about it. I figured it was all one spot on the map, and they just put them all down there, and that was that. How how far away were the actual sites? Yeah, so um, these there there are four blast sites. So there's Nord Stream One, there's Nord Stream Two. Each of these pipelines ha uh, are dual lines, so four lines total. Um, one of the blast sites is Nord Stream Two, 
and it is in the uh, Danish economic zone. And that is just off, it is not far from the Danish island of Bornholm. The other blast sites are about 75 or 80 kilometers away. Also, of course, in the Baltic Sea. Bryce, we're going to eventually talk about your trip to the UN here uh, because that's, I, I, I'm really pleased that you were able to go there and get some good information presented to the world and show the world that not all of the Americans are, um, you know, neoconservative, bitter end imperialists. Maybe mm -hmm. the, maybe our new Chinese overlords will have mercy on us uh, later on <laughs> if they <laughs> know that we're not all like Jake Sullivan or something. I, I don't really know, but, uh, you know, uh, you were, it's cool that you were able to go there and talk about all of, uh, summarize some of the, uh, work that you've done on this. Maybe, um, maybe we should talk a little bit about that before we get into some of the findings here, just because your, your work gives a good overview and I not probably all, not all of my listeners are totally steeped in Nord Stream. We've talked about it before, but, uh, not since you went to New York, so maybe we should maybe it does make sense to talk about that, and then we'll come back to to Jeffrey uh, about what his investigation could could add to the the story. But uh, Bryce, what was your experience like to go to New? Who was it that invited you to speak to the Security Council, and um, how how did that how did that go? And what are the main what are the takeaways you'd like to uh, if you're going to try to summarize this Nord Stream business? What would you what would you do? Just basically give us an overview of your adventures in New York. Right. Um... Yeah, so I was invited actually by, well, officially by the, the Russian delegation to the UN. But the, the reason I snagged that invite was because uh, George Galloway was actually asked about, uh, you know, who would be a good person to have to talk about this issue. And I had been on his show a couple of times and we have pretty good rapport and he recommended me. Uh, and uh, I was scrambling around thinking, like, how am I going to do this, get to New York and like, uh, <laughs> you know, a week? It was really only a week before the event happened that I was asked. Um, but uh, I managed to, uh, with a lot of help from some very special friends, um, uh, like our buddies at American Exception, <laughs> get a ticket to go to New York. I crashed with some, uh, some other friends, uh, some DSA people. I don't know. Well, you're friendly with uh, uh, like Amanda Yee and that whole milieu, right? Um, yeah, I wanted to have her. I, I want to have her come on at some point and talk about China. I just haven't gotten around. I, I, every time I think of it, I put something else off. But yeah, she seems very cool. Uh, Katie Halper's up there too. Um, yeah, you know, I did like, end up getting a, a lunch with Katie Halper, which was which was nice. Yeah, she's um, very, she's great. Oh yeah, very encouraging. Um, but yeah, so I was asked to draft remarks and uh and you know to all the people calling me a you know russian stooge or whatever i mean it was pretty clear that uh they weren't going to have any input over what i was going to write when i had a phone conversation with the uh, deputy russian ambassador he was pretty clear that i can say whatever i want um and so there was no real influence there but the hardest part about these remarks was to condense them and to explain this whole story in uh, less than 15 minutes. And uh, once we get into the details, you'll see how difficult that actually is. Uh, but it, I, I submitted a, a first draft and they were like, well, this is probably too long. Uh, and so I resubmitted it. But the gist of, the, of my remarks was that immediately after the pipeline exploded, 
the Western press almost universally blamed Russia. You know, they, they admitted, the New York Times actually wrote explicitly that uh, it wasn't clear why Russia would bomb their own pipeline that they spent billions and billions of dollars to finish and, and to inaugurate. Uh, but pretty quickly, the, the line in the media, later that day actually, seemed to be that, well, you know, they just did it for a vague uh, intimidation, to intimidate the West, to show them that your pipelines are never safe and that we can always reach to you, get, get to you. Uh, and, you know, that, you know, if you don't know anything about geopolitics and if you're an average, like, American who is steeped in all this new Cold War rhetoric, well, then the explanation that, you know, Putin's just crazy and he'll bomb himself just to stick it to the West, it might make sense to you. But if you pay attention to the context surrounding the pipeline, surrounding the Ukraine war, and just the general character of the United States regime, well, that explanation really is lacking. And I outlined that it was lacking for uh, some key reasons. One, like I said, Russia built the pipeline, and so it doesn't really make sense for them to blow it up. They spent billions and billions of dollars on it. Uh, the idea that uh, a narrow objective like mere intimidation would be worth billions and billions of dollars to the Russian, that just doesn't make sense uh, on its face. <laughs> and, it would also have to be plausible as even working to that end at all how could it how, how would it even do that even a little bit like it's ridiculous this is just like i'm gonna i mean i guess you could intimidate people if you just like walk into a room and like grab a mallet and whack yourself in the balls people might be like okay that guy's a little crazy but that, that doesn't really make sense in geopolitics like this is a kind of the most <laughs> one of the more ridiculous things i've ever heard of yeah and, and like it, it might fly with the like you know your average you know uninformed cnn viewer because you, you say oh it's a german pipeline and germany was supporting ukraine uh and blowing up the pipeline is a way to stick it to germany uh, and russia's willing to to take that hit it, just to make germany suffer but that also fails on its face uh, because the Nord stream it had been shut off at the time the Nord stream one had been shut off the Nord stream two had just been completed but it had never been turned on the russians uh had stopped pumping gas through Nord Stream 1. Uh, they said it was because of maintenance, but uh, a lot of observers really just saw it as a way to uh, squeeze Germany because they were deeply supporting the Ukraine war, which Russia sees as an existential threat. And so one of the points of leverage was that uh, Russia could at any point turn on the pipelines, which would lower Russian or lower German gas prices, get the, get the gas flowing again. And so... Uh, they were actually talking about this uh, in the days before the pipeline explosion. You know, Putin had said that, oh, well, all Germany has to do is lift sanctions against the Nord Stream 2. Then they can get gas from both the Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. Um, and then like a, a week, uh, a week or two after that, uh, you pipeline go boom. <laughs> so yeah. it, it just doesn't make sense that Russia would do that. Like uh, to it would, it would not only hamstrings their own long-standing interests, but hamstrings their immediate interests in the Ukraine war. It's just, it's just laughable. And the biggest reason that uh, the story that Russia did it wasn't plausible was that it ignores uh, the obvious culprit, the, the people who have been loudly shouting, loudly telling the world that they're against the Nord Stream pipeline. And that's the West. That's the U.S. in particular, but you know, also Poland and even and even Ukraine. Uh, Norway, but at that time, nor, nor, even Norway, yeah, and Norway, benefits. yeah, and Norway, yeah, and 
yeah, the fact that no one in the media was willing to even entertain that possibility, uh, except Tucker Carlson, and when he did it, you know, they put his name in Cyrillic letters in the top of the Washington Post saying Russia loves Tucker Tucker Carlson's conspiracy theory about the pipeline. Uh, it, it was ridiculous. D democracy dies in darkness. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, I almost quoted that at the UN. Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world is the is going to save yeah. democracy. Yeah, what a what a load. But but the case for the U.S. the circumstantial and also they were but they were the, besides the circum besides the obvious cost benefit Kibono uh, you know analysis you had b multiple statesmen being like yeah that Nord Stream it's going to be taken down I mean <laughs> they were like saying they were going to take it offline oh yeah the, the circumstantial case for the U.S. complicity versus the the on its face case for Russian complicity is just it's just overwhelming. Like before the war started, well, take even before all of this happened, before 2014, when the Nord Stream pipeline was first announced, uh, the Obama administration was opposed to it. Uh, and then that continued under the Trump administration and that continued under the Biden administration. In fact, the, the Trump administration sanctioned companies who were working on the pipeline. And when uh, Tony Blinken was being uh, confirmed by the Congress to his position as Secretary of State, he said that I'll do everything I can to make sure that Nord Stream 2 uh, is not completed or is not a viable project. And then weeks before the invasion, while the U.S. was, you know, maintaining their position of non-negotiation and uh, almost certainly knowingly forcing a war, um, they were making statements saying, well, if Russia attacks, Nord Stream 2 won't go forward. Victoria Nuland herself, she said, if Russia attacks, Nord Stream 2 will not go forward. And she was, you know, gave that stern mom voice, will not go forward. And then Joe Biden uh, later, he says, yeah, Nord Stream 2, we, we will put an end to it if Russia invades. We will put an end to it. And a German reporter actually asked him, this is a German project. How do you plan on putting an end to it? Uh, well, Biden responds, uh, well, I promise you we can make it happen. And this is all the more uh, humiliating for Germany because if I recall correctly, Olaf Scholz was standing right by him as he was saying that, looking a little sheepish. Uh, so just the, just the case on its face that it was, uh, that it was the U.S. I mean, it, the fact that no one investigated it should raise eyebrows. I mean, you have Peter Dale Scott's idea of a negative template. Well, if the media is ignoring very obvious things, that means that you should probably investigate it. And there's something deeper going on here. Uh, and that was yeah. pretty, pretty clear. I mean, yeah. uh, don't even get to the, the Polish guy saying, thank you, USA, uh, Riedek Sikorski, which was, uh, I guess, an another. Oh, yeah. And he's you know, married. Isn't he married flag. to one of, he's, he's married he's to married one of those neoconservative uh, harpies. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And Applebaum. Yeah. It's, and, uh, it's so strange the way this has happened, man. Yeah. In recent and, years, and, it's been like, that's been one of the things of the U.S. is to have ladies out there as uh, doing the sort of imperial th i mean you have that you have jake sullivan who is a, a white dude from white dude central casting but like the the bringing in all these women is a different spin on this and i don't i don't know that it's really it's for optics i guess to a degree i mean i'm sure they're not it, they're not any more incompetent than the dudes but it's a there's a lot of these people in recent libya was like that libya had all these women that were there were like three women susan it was susan rice 
um hillary and samantha power they were they were like cheering them on it was this is a these are this is amazing. The thing about all these women is that they're they're part of like the the most nightmarish power couples that you could possibly yeah, imagine. Yeah, yeah. Like you have Victoria Newland and Robert Kagan. You have Anne Applebaum and uh, and Redick Sikorsky, the the Polish uh, member of European yeah. Pol- Parliament. You have Samantha Power and Cass Sunstein, which I only learned about recently. Which is ugh. yeah. <laughs> and then you have of course Hillary and Bill Clinton, and it's just. The most ghoulish power. Oh, I also learned that uh, what Michael Scheuer, this is a digression, but Michael Scheuer of Alex Station ended up marrying uh, uh, Alfreda Francis Bukowski, uh, the the Zero Doc 30 Jessica Chastain character. Really? She can't be as good looking just, as Jessica yeah. Ch- I mean, I, I don't want to judge people here, but I, I would guess she doesn't look as good as Jessica Chastain because that Scheuer fellow was a... I don't want to, he seems a little, I don't want to say like a, he's not an especially handsome man. Okay. I'm, I'm wanting to, he's, he, did you guys hear that Condoleezza Rice is, is engaged to um, David Frum now? No way. <laughs> I'm pulling your chair. Oh, God. That would be, oh, okay. Well, it almost seems that, like it seems as possible as anything. It's hard to think of her marrying be, anyone. Well, it, would be the icing on the, it would be the icing on the imperial cake, yeah. wouldn't it? Yeah. Is she married? Susan Rice. Susan Rice is married to Jerry Rice, right? Wait, no. <laughs> no, she's married to the guy who had. The, I, I don't she's know anything married, about She's Susan married Rice, to the guy uh, that, that slept her, with. Her uh, love life, but he's married. She's married to the guy that slept with um, Sarah Palin, uh, Glenn Rice. I'm just kidding here. We're getting really far afield. Let's get back to. They're not. That's not true. This <laughs> we is. Are. We this are. is misinformation. Please, no one. Uh, these things about marriages. <laughs> look them up. Do not assume that they're true. Let's get into this issue that you mentioned, uh, Bryce, which is the the not talking about this and not investigating it. Like, you know, Jeffrey's out there driving to it. Why in the world does it fall to him? Why has the New York Times not sent somebody to do it? This is amazing. Uh, and it goes, it's it's one of these areas where you, you have this, this, this vacuum where it obviously should be checked out, but nobody wants to do it. Um, Jeffrey, what... What did you find when you went out there? I mean, you you have a number of uh, technical aspects or forensic aspects that I think you've been able to to add to, and you've consulted some ex- experts after after the fact. So, w- what were you able what were you able to to find out there? Uh, you know, in terms of like where the uh, what kind of explosives were used, and and this sort of technical information. What do you think that your uh, expedition has added, and your research has added to this story? Okay, so the expedition had um had four goals, um, four objectives, and these were these were all met. Um, the expedition's goal was never to unmask the perpetrator that, you know, we knew that was probably going to be um, not realistic. So the, we wanted to know, um, well, first, I should say we wanted to capture images that had never been public before, um, because the BBC went in October of 2022, and then a Swedish newspaper called Expressen also went, but they only went to one of the blast sites. And so these pipes were pressurized, um, and Bryce is correct in saying that Nord Stream 2 never went online, but when the explosions occurred, the, pl- the pipes had gas in them. So imagine you have a-, a garden hose in your hand, and there's water in it, highly pressurized water, and you let go of it, and then a little break occurs. Well, the garden hose goes crazy, it thrashes about, and... It can, especially if it's on a cold day, you know, the hose is somewhat brittle and it can rupture in several places. 
So this is the mistake that the BBC and the Expressen made. Um, they only went to one of the blast sites, and they went to a blast site, and they actually, I should actually not call it a blast site, they went to a rupture site, because there, these pipelines were pressurized, so there were big ruptures in the pipelines, 250 meters, 50 meters. So if you, I show you a hole in a large pipeline, I say, this, this is 50 meters, or this is 250 meters, you can't tell me where the bomb was placed. You can't tell me, you can't draw any conclusions about where the bomb was placed, how many, what was the quantity of explosives used, and what were the type of charges that were used. So it was very important for us to go to all four sites, but we really were most interested in going to one of the sites. And this is Nord Stream 2, line A, in the exclusive economic zone of Sweden. Why? Because this was the line that was blown up twice. There were four explosions, but they actually, but this line was blown up twice, one 17 hours previously in the Danish zone, and then 17 hours afterwards in the Swedish zone. So by the time it was blown up twice, by the time the pipeline was compromised twice, most of the gas had already been released, had already rushed out rapidly due to the rapid um, reduction in pressure. So this blast site has a much smaller hole. And if you show explosive experts, I talked to ex-US Navy SEALs, people that have actually carried out these kind of operations for the United States, and I have them quoted on the record. I also spoke to the, um, the managing director of explosive engineering company, and I was able to show these experts this specific footage and these specific images with the measurements on there. And then they were able to say, oh, this was the amount of explosives used, this is where the bomb was placed, and this is likely the type of charges used. It had been previously reported in outlets, some of our favorite outlets like the New York Times and the Guardian and um, a whole host of other um, mainstream media outlets that had erroneously reported that upwards of 500 kilograms of explosives were used at each blast site. There was someone that even said 700 kilograms of each, at each blast site. Well, the problem was is that they, one is they were basing their estimations not off of an actual image or measurements of a blast site, but rather ruptures in the pipeline. They didn't actually locate a blast site. So that's one. The second thing is that the seismic readings threw off these um, estimations because we didn't know, experts didn't know how much of the, of the damage was actually caused by the outrushing gas and how much it was actually caused by the bombs themselves. So that was very hard to calculate. You needed to be able to show them images of what we call the depressurized site, which is Nord Stream, again, Nord Stream 2, line A in the Swedish economic zone. Then they were able to draw accurate conclusions. My experts told me that only 10 to 50 kilograms of explosives were used at each blast site. This is a vastly lower amount that had been previously reported and erroneously reported. Um, it was also reported that um, there may have been linear shape charges used. And linear shape charge is basically a charge that is kind of adhered or attached to um, the element that the, the person would want compromised. Now, these charges were probably just bulk or slab explosives, and they were probably buried slightly under the pipeline and maybe um, uh, buried slightly under the pipeline. And then the other big finding, which is one of our goals that was also accomplished, was um, the type of explosives used, the, the placement um, yeah, so th those are really the three main goals and also, of course, capturing these images. And that's what we were able to do. And we were able to finally draw accurate conclusions about the operation, how it was carried out, and the logistics behind it. Right. And it, I, I should correct myself. It's the depressurized site, the site that was blown up twice, is Line A, Swedish Economic Zone, Nord Stream 2. 
That's really the clue, the key to finding out everything, because that's the only site that you can look at primary damage. And what I mean by that is I don't mean damage caused by outrushing gas. I mean damage that was just caused by explosives and bombs. So when you say damage caused by outrushing gas, I mean, is that purely from the pressure and being released in this, this, this fuel being, you know, released like similar to water in a garden hose, or is this, I mean, when you have an explosive like that and it blows up something that is carrying flammable explosive material, did it, did that ignite and make the explosion even bigger and kind of mess up the crime scene even more or or is it just yeah, it, I, was or the fact that it was underwater meant that it, it basically exploded destroyed the pipeline and then all the gas leaked you know leaked out or i mean how did that can you elaborate on that at all i mean i'm not a physics yeah, person I, but I, it's, I can't i'm not an expert in this regard but i can to a certain degree um it's kind of going back to the metaphor about the uh, the, uh, the garden hose um with a lot of water in it and you know like in your kid your kid you crimp the garden hose yeah. right well so if you had pressure in something and you pinprick it this yes this gas caused ruptures that were not near the places where the bombs were actually um were actually put so if you if i show you a picture of a ruptured pipeline ruptured garden hose and it has holes in it in several places holes of varying sizes and holes that are huge up to you know 250 meters you don't know where the primary damage started you don't know where the bomb initiated from and that 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 I mean, I hope that answers your, your question. And so, yes, the answer is yes. The outrushing gas caused ruptures that had actually nothing to do with the explosion. Nothing, excuse me, it had everything to do with the explosion, but nothing to do with actually the TNT or RDX or HMX that was used or Semtex, whatever type of explosive was used. Yeah. And what what did you what sort of clarity did you get about the type of um, explosives that were that were? Uh, put yeah, to... uh, that, that, that's a whole. Another thing. So one, the other thing that we did besides our expedition is we actually um, retrieved sediments from the blast site. And of course, we again chose this depressurized Nord Stream 2 Line A Swedish Economic Zone blast site because that's the place where um, the sediments weren't dispersed as much because that, um, that explosion was just much smaller because the gas was already gone and therefore you didn't have the the, the additional pressure that added to the magnitude of the explode of the explosion um so we actually retrieved sediments um i took them to a lab with a colleague in germany and um we had them tested for explosive traces uh, we had them tested for over over 50 chemicals um, chemical substances that would be commonly found in explosives um and especially um, HMX, because that was that is allegedly the explosive that was found on Andromeda, that was allegedly used by these six um, anti-Putin pro-Ukrainians that um, damaged the sabotage the pipeline, and of course TNT and you know TNT and um, what else here TNT PET PET and DNT Semtex. Um, however, no explosive traces um, were detected. It may just simply be because by the time we got there, you know, the the sabotage took place eight months earlier. So, you know, there are sea currents and any explosive traces could have been dispersed. Another reason, another reason that no explosive traces were detected is perhaps, um, you know, there are different, there are a whole host of types of lab analysis, analysis that one can get. And maybe 
a different lab analysis would yield different results. Although I kind of doubt that because I talked to several experts before um, I ordered this exact um, test. And I should say this part, I didn't pay for the, um, to go on the expedition, but I did pay for all the lab results out of my own pocket. Um, and I talked to, you know, five, six, seven experts. Um, one of them being Mike Vining, who Scott Ritter is on the record on is saying, quote, knows more about explosives than anyone um, in the United States. And they all recommended this certain type of test. And so, of course, that's the one that I uh, ordered. Um, so I don't, I just simply don't think there were explosive traces in there. Um, but I also got tons of pushback from these labs. I contacted over a dozen labs in Europe, and I should say that they are all private, for-profit labs. Um, and none of them want, would want to service me. Um, and I know that some of them were lying to me and saying, oh, we can't do this type of test because I know they advertised it on their website. And um, another one said, well, um, was there, know, was there was ever an opportunity to just be like, hey, I'm going to submit some material to you. Don't ask where it came from. Just tell me what tell me what's in this. Uh, I didn't I didn't have to say where it came from. In fact, um, one of the labs that my colleague um, talked to, he did tell them the truth about where it came from. And uh, geez, that lab representatives uh, pants must have caught on fire because he couldn't get off the phone um, quick enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, I so we didn't actually that wasn't they didn't that was not a question that they uh, they did ask. But let's just say that we weren't um, forthcoming about where it came from. Did you ever think uh, about perhaps contriving a cover story to be like, well, there was a <laughs> I'm working for an arson case and you know, we did contrive it. We did contrive a cover story. Um, good, good. We knew that's good. Craft. We knew that they wouldn't. We knew that these laboratories <laughs> would not touch anything to do with the nurturing sabotage because, as Bryce has said, you know, this is um, a paraphrase in the title of his article. Um, something like the nurturing pop sabotage is the no-fly zone for the mainstream media, and you know, these labs, just, despite the fact they're for profit, and you know, they just didn't seem to want my money. It took me, you know, I had to contact ten before one would agree to even do this analysis for me. Yeah, I mean, that's a, for people that work in these areas where you potentially do work with big, you know, big corporate clients or with states, with governments, um, you, you have a lot of, uh, it's hard to get people to do what their profession would dictate. I mean, George H, George W. Bush or his uh, campaign in 2000, they had Jeb Bush in Florida tell all the Florida lawyers if they represented the Gore team in 2000 that they wouldn't get any work for the state. So of course you can guess what happened. This was a thing for 9/11. Whenever they, there were people that were really interested in trying to look at the uh, forensics of that, and then structural engineers were reluctant to even weigh into it because they all get government contracts. So this right. is like what you're what you're describing seems like very uh, plausible because people though, if you want to work with the state, you kind of have to avoid really pissing them off because that's your your meal ticket you know you do and, and, and getting back to what bryce was saying about you know it, it doesn't you know he was you know eloquently you know detailing all the reasons the geopolitical reasons and financial reasons why it doesn't make sense that russia did this and one of the findings from our expedition actually um you know debunked or discredited one of the arguments um behind uh, this was mainly an argument um forward by the open source intelligent community people like bellingcat oh god and they said and they said well um you know there are four lines and russia intentionally left one of the four lines intact because that's how they can use it for geopolitical political leverage well we 99 percent 
Sure, we know now why this fourth line remains intact. And it simply remained intact because of a mistake. The same line was bombed twice. Um, and I can say how I know. Um, the same thing happened to the BBC when they went there. Um, the drone operator who I interviewed named Tron Larson, he got turned around because for lack of a better term, and if I can find it, in fact, I think I will just read it um, because it's easier read than that. So there is basically along the Baltic seafloor. Anyway, I'll just wing it and say it in a less um, detailed way, but basically along the seafloor, for, for the lack of a better word, okay, there's these, the presence of these massive power cables. They lie on the seabed near these blast sites, okay? And they can distort the Earth's magnetic field. In fact, they can distort the Earth's magnetic field so heavily that a compass can be turned around as much as 180 degrees. This happened to Tron Larson when he went with the BBC to one blast site. And this all ha also happened to our drone operator, which was Eric, uh, um, who was Eric Anderson. He thought he was going one way, he was going almost exactly the opposite way. And this is probably what happened to the divers. They simply made a mistake because they got disoriented and they lost their, um, they basically lost their way and probably bombed the same pipeline twice. So you this mean happened, the one that, the one that bought that was like 17 hours later was potentially supposed to be well, another three of the lines were um, there three, one explosion took place 17 hours before okay. the next three. Okay. 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 So wait, does that part okay. factor so, into the into the redundant bombing? It, what what factors into the redundant bombing is that you know, like I said, there's these massive power cables yeah. lying on the seabed, and they can distort the, they 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 distort the Earth's magnetic field, and they can basically trick a compass. Okay. So if you are a diver or you're operating a drone and you're relying, you know, on a compass to get your bearings. Your bearings can be off by literally pretty much 180 degrees. Yeah, this is very, very likely what happened, and why the second line, why the fourth line was actually bombed twice. It was probably a mistake in the operation. It happened to our drone operator, and it happened to Tron Larson, um, another drone operator that went previously. This is probably what happened. So these people who say, "Oh, Russia did it," and Russia did it, and why do you think they left Nord Stream? to line B intact. Oh, because it's geopolitical leverage, particularly over Germany, as Bryce said. Well, guess what? The bomb, the, the, the line was very, very likely bombed by accident twice. So that really, um, no pun intended, but that blows holes through that argument that Russia did it, you know, left this line intact um, intentionally. Another thing that undermines the, the case that, you know, oh, Russia's behind this. Um, from our expedition is again that these bombs were probably slightly buried under the pipeline. Well, if most of the open source intelligence community has been publishing articles or being quoted in articles in the mainstream media saying, well, Russian submarines were likely involved. Well, if you have a submarine, you probably don't bury, slightly bury the bomb. That's the work of a diver. So that's another reason that these Russian arguments, besides the obviously geopolitical and economic reasons why Russia is probably not behind this, is there are actually you know, operational reasons why Russia is not behind this. And these are some of the things that we uncovered on the expedition. I mean, if Russia was going to do it, wouldn't they want to 
do it on the Russian side of it or, or, or the, or a more neutral side, at least like why they would go, why would they go into, I mean, I get, these are all the questions basically are like this when you ask them, it's like, yeah, it's yeah ridiculous, I mean, but... devil's advocate, devil's advocate, you know, they would say, well, you know, they, they wouldn't want to do it. It would be too obvious, but you know, again, <laughs> yeah. one of these blast sites, and this is the, this is the one that blew up 17 hours before the other three is right off the island of the Danish island of Bornholm. And surprise, surprise, there is a Danish spy station on the island of Bornholm. So it doesn't also add up why Russia would, would do this right in the presence of a, NATO's, a NATO country's you know, surveillance yeah, system. I mean, you would be, you'd be sending out uh, uh, ships with Russian state assets, like fancy drone, underwater drones and other things, if you were Russia to do this. It's not like when it happened, it led to any tangible gain for Russia in any way. I mean, I know we're kind of beating a dead horse here, but it's like the media, <laughs> the media halfway wants this dead horse to be foisted up and praised for being a, a, a healthy horse or something. I don't even know how to describe. I don't know what the metaphor is, but it's insane. Well, one of the uh, one of the other interesting things uh, about why the uh, why you shouldn't assume that Russia would do something like this. Uh, is that later it came out uh, from James Bamford's piece in The Nation, is that the U.S. has the bottom of the Baltics wired up to the high heaven. They have uh, <laughs> yeah. these acoustic sensors uh, that are able to pinpoint a ship and its origin and its nationality and its type based on the, like, on the sound of the engine. And they have these sensors uh, lining the, almost the entire floor of the Baltic Sea. Now, I don't know if this has been reported publicly before or if James Banford was just uh, reporting it here for the first time, uh, but the Russians almost certainly have some idea of the surveillance capabilities of the West, and the idea that they would go and mount this operation this close to Western allies uh, is laughable. <laughs> and it's, I mean, it's also laughable that if it was Russia, that the U.S. would have all of this uh, evidence— uh, they'd be able to pinpoint the exact ships and its exact location, its exact trajectory, but we haven't seen it. You know, if the if the if there was a slam dunk intelligence find that would point to Russia, I can guarantee you we would have seen that on like September twenty seventh, the day after. But uh, the fact that that hasn't come out, I mean, it just bolsters the the case. I mean, it's not really a case; it's just a fact <laughs> at this point that the U.S. and the West are hiding something that they have something to hide. I mean, like the investigations, uh, the Danish, the Swedes, and the Germans, they're all doing their investigations. Uh, but beyond some leaks uh, and some stray comments, uh, we don't really hear anything about them. And we haven't heard anything about them. Uh, occasionally, they'll send an update saying, well, the investigation is ongoing and we will have our results when we have our results. Thank you very much. Uh, but, you know, that doesn't tell you anything. Uh, the Swedish, Swe Sweden has actually said that well, we don't want to share our results with other countries due to national security concerns. Uh, I mean, what concerns? <laughs> like, what could yeah. what could possibly be so damaging? Like, what what sources or methods could possibly be so sensitive that you can't even collaborate with another ostensibly allied government's secret intelligence investigative body or whatever? Like, it's just it's just so so bizarre. Well, it would be damaging to national security because Sweden, even before it officially joins NATO, it has been unofficially NATO. 
I'm, I'm bringing Ola Tanander on. He knows more about the Swedish deep state than anyone else. And uh, he was saying that the, the, main, the main rule for Sweden for decades uh, with NATO was nothing on paper, meaning that at the very top of the Swedish you know, command structure, the military, uh, there are agreements between them and, and liaisons from the U.S., you know, NATO officials, that basically they, they, are, they need to do whatever NATO tells them to when, if, if need be. And, I mean, that's just the gist of it. NATO is really sovereign over, over NATO countries. And, and even countries that aren't, some of them like Sweden, that aren't NATO because politically they couldn't do it, they just get told, that, like, this is how it's going to be. So this is, it, it, it's really... The, when you're saying it's national, they say it's national security, that's because at the top of Sweden, they have decided that being a, a subordinate, a, uh, a client state of, of the U.S. Imperium and of NATO is, is the national interest. And so since it would be damaging to that, I think that's probably the basis for it. So in a way, they're not lying. No, no and what, what Bryce is talking about there is he's talking about the integrated undersea surveillance system. That was cited in the in the James Banford piece in the Nation, and yeah, well, who did the, who built this with the U.S.? It was Sweden. So, <laughs> so you know, Sweden and the U.S. basically probably knew in real time, um, yeah, what was happening. Um, and another and the thing, the leaders, the the polit this politicians may not have, although it seems that the Norway guy did know based on what Olatanander has written, but the Swedish as 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 Ola lays it out and, and explains it at the, the military, the military Sweden operates with great, they, they tell the poli they tell political Sweden what political Sweden needs to know. It's interesting because even though they're doing this secretive investigation and James Bamford, I think was the one to ask this question or get this quote from the lead Swedish investigator was that they don't believe it's Russia. They're willing to publicly say, at least uh, in this phase of the story, that they don't believe it's Russia because it's not logical and he never thought it was. Uh, so that that's another interesting angle to the evolution of this story. Like, you know, you had, uh, you know how Peter Dill Scott does the, the phases for the, the JFK assassination, you know, phase one stories. Well, in the Nord Stream story, phase one was, uh, you know, Russia did it. And uh, during that phase, you really didn't hear much outside of a few scattered mentions that Ukraine might have been involved. Well, and no people one like you and me. Or... Was... Yeah. But then well, there I mean, was people, phase... People like, uh... you and me, people like you and me would have been like, this, the U.S. did this. And we would have pointed out the tweets of like the Polish dude and other people. It was like, this is obviously <laughs> the U.S. This, did, this took no time. This was no Sherlock Holmes kind of... Exactly. And, and that's what Seymour Hirsch keeps saying when interviewed about this. He People ask him, like, oh, how did you find this story? It was like, <laughs> he says, like, well, they, they, they said it. <laughs> they said that they don't want this pipeline. Yeah. But, I mean, Seymour Hirsch was, like, the phase two of the story, which uh, February 8th, his story drops. And then, you know, everyone loses their minds and calls it disinformation. And, you know, even Snopes is on the case to tell you that, oh, well, actually, it comes from a, an anonymous source. Okay. Uh, but then you have phase three, which is uh, it started when the New York Times published their piece on the uh, the you know the six Ukrainians uh, and not connected to Zelensky, but still anti-Putin and all that stuff. Uh, but that that started phase three, which then you saw the uh, you know Dizite uh, published their piece, Holger Stark's work. Uh, so it, it it's come out in different phases, but 
you only saw that response from the Swedish investigator well into phase three. So, I mean, they started their investigation a while ago, and if he really didn't think it was Russia, maybe he was being prudent about it, but when have these people ever been shy about, you know, pushing public opinion in some way? So it's just uh, interesting to note when you track the evolution of this story. It's preposterous, but if they really wanted to solve the crime, you know, they could, President Biden could say, we are going to offer a reward and amnesty for anyone with, you know, information that can, uh, you know, definitively determine the identity of uh, the Nord Stream bomber. But of course, he doesn't do that, you know, because probably somebody from his own National Security Council would come forward and be like, I'd like that million dollars, maybe. I mean, who knows? But, like, they don't do that. If they they really were interested, then, and they really had nothing to hide, they would say something like that. But they don't, they don't do that. You know, this is, that's, that's revealing. It's not just the Swedish investigators either. I mean, the Swedish investigator did, did say exactly what Bryce said. He said that, you know, he was quoting the New York Times saying, do I think Russia did it? No, it doesn't seem logical, something like that. And also the German investigators were recently quoted in Expressen, um, you know, saying that the presence of Russian vessels and their movements has, quote, been dismissed. And their, quote, the positions have been mapped and the conclusion must be that they have not been in such a place that they could have carried out the deed, end quote. So it's, you know, three countries are investigating this, Denmark, Germany, and Sweden. And two of the three, their lead investigators have now said, you know, we don't think that these Russian vessel movements had anything to do with it. And then, you know, again, getting back to the people saying, well, Russia did because they used one of their high-tech submarines, one of these billion-dollar submarines. They have stealth submarines. Well, you know, on our expedition, one of the things we wanted to find out, and we did find out, is by looking at sonar images, we were able to figure out that the bomb was placed on the seam of the pipeline, and at least one line. Now, that's significant because the pipelines are basically, you know, they're concrete, and steel, and they're pretty thick, and they're pretty, you know, they're, they have girth to them. These are 23 billion, piece of $23 billion infrastructure. But the seams are just covered with um, polyurethane foam. So with explosives, they're a lot easier to compromise. So these, these explosives were placed on the seam, and, you know, therefore, it would make, it would facilitate, let's say, it would facilitate a diver diving down with explosives because there are just a smaller amount in kilograms that you needed to compromise a seam as opposed to a part that would be concrete and steel. You know, er- earlier in the show or before the show, we were talking about, uh, uh, you know, Bamford's piece in the Ukraine did it theory. And he actually, Bamford actually does come out and say that he thinks the diving scenario that seems to be corroborated by your uh, expedition and your research and investigating that diving scenario, he says, is almost impossible. Uh, and he says that mostly on the strength of the the idea that the Andromeda was still involved. He says that it doesn't make sense for divers to be uh, coming off the Andromeda because they would need you know decompression chambers that simply couldn't fit on that tiny-ass yacht. So Bamford actually dismisses the idea of divers, which is interesting. And uh, I... I wonder what he would have to say in response to that, uh, if he's still 
uh, I don't know if he's read your reporting or, yeah. or or what he's been doing since he published this piece. Yeah, I, I mean, I can't I can't say with one hundred percent assurity that you know divers were involved. Um, but you know, there are um, if you if you read one of the pieces about our expedition in the Intercept by um, I can't think of his name right now, but Jeremy Scahill. Um, he has some people, I believe, I haven't read the piece in a while, but he has people quoted on the record saying that, you know, divers can do this, um, that something like, you know, people, Baltic divers can do this. I, from my understanding, um, is that there's really, we're really talking about two separate issues. We're talking about one, could divers do this? And two, could divers have done this from Andromeda? The, exp right. the experts that I've spoken to seem to doubt that and divers would have done this from Andromeda because it wasn't big enough. Um, there were problems with transportation, you know, what you can carry, maybe the decompression chambers. Um, so there seemed, it seems to be, and I'm not for sure that, you know, there's logistical or operational, not impossibilities, but setbacks, let's say, um, mm -hmm. regarding the use of Andromeda to carry this out. But on the other hand, divers themselves do say, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a diver. I'm a, you know, I'm a well-seasoned commercial diver, and I can go down to 80 meters at the, at the Baltic. And we know this because there's a lot of, um, in fact, the, the boat that we chartered, one of the things that how he makes an income that the captain of our boat is one of the things he does is he takes people out who are interested in sea um, wrecks. And he takes them and they locate the sea wrecks and they dive down and they look at the sea wrecks and they're kind of historical buffs and ex a lot of ex-Navy people. Um, and they, they dive down. My understanding is they do dive down to 80 feet. Or excuse me, 80 meters. Um, so that, you know, that operationally, that, that is capable um, of, of being done. Um, I don't know, and this would be an excellent question for James Banzer and from other people. And now that we're thinking about this, it's kind of giving me a new idea, you know, a new angle to pursue is, yeah, we probably know that you can dive down 80 meters, but can you dive down 80 meters just with Andromeda? With this amount of explosives, with this amount of people, um, yes or no? And I think the the I think that's still an unanswered question, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what Bryson, um, Bryson Aaron, you guys think about that. Well, even with um like let's we we've talked about how the directions you know your orientation can be thrown off because of uh like electro it's electromagnetic interference or something like that right um the, for lack of a better word we can call it that sure okay well and but if that would affect a compass would that affect the navigation system on a on a drone on an underwater drone as well i mean and if not why wouldn't it, it i mean it, wouldn't it, they... it did it did yeah i, I probably so, explained myself poorly well, no, you may have you may have said it, and I may have been half thinking. I may oh, have been thinking about it's, it's you know, completely but, your fault, Aaron. Um, so no, so, um, no, because yeah. this stuff is a little bit is a little bit heady. But I just want to clarify what you're saying is like yes, even yeah. the, these aspects could have the, this idea of a mistake and being thrown off by the the compass readings and such that would apply to both a diver or a or a drone. Indeed, in fact, it did apply to a drone on at least two occasions, and we have evidence of that. It happened to our drone operator while he was operating the drone, and it happened to Tron Larson, who is the drone operator, who was commissioned yeah, okay. by the BBC yeah, and Express right. newspaper. So okay. I, I can't answer if other things would be thrown off um, by, by this, you know, the, but they're, they're massive power cables um, lying on the seabed that distort the Earth's magnetic field. That's what they are. You're right. 
Yeah, that's why that's the if it's the cables, then I guess it is the electromagnetic yes. whatever. So, yeah, so okay, that's that's what I'm trying to get. Yeah, you you did say that about the drones yeah. earlier, and and I, as I recall now, but I'm I'm sort of halfway imagining the drone issue, or I'm halfway imagining drivers being uh, divers thinking like, oh my god, yeah, if looking it, if at a compass swirling off, around. If it threw off drones on two occasions. We know this for sure. Therefore, it can throw off a diver that's relying on a compass because on yeah. these drones there is a compass attached. And I think I think there's a compass on the drone, and then on like the dr drone's remote control that gives you a reading. Yeah. So another issue here that I guess this is more to hash out logically, but the issue of whether the Ukrainians did it, if the Ukraine, I mean the U.S. the, the part of the, the way you the U.S. empire works is an informal thing, and the U.S. doesn't say we're the empire, we rule the world. They always use cutouts for things like they've used the British secret services in like places like Indonesia, Congo, Iran. They've used them all, all over and over and over again in, for covert operations. Uh, you know, the Israelis have been used at different times for different things. Um, the, the French, I think, at one point were involved in an assassination plot against Hugo Chavez. Like it's they always use these guys. So even if it was a Ukrainian outfit, they would have had to have been given the green light by Washington, right? I mean, they would have been, I mean, even to go into those areas, as we were talking about, they're very heavily, they're surveilled with sophisticated technology. I mean, probably the most sophisticated in the world, that's or at least of what you could put in something like that. So, I mean, doesn't this seem also, even whoever the divers were, if they were Ukrainian, like they, they had, they would, in all likelihood, they would have been US cutouts and or given i mean the us would they they you they wouldn't have done it without understanding that this was something that the us was going to allow to go forward i would have to believe right it, it, like the 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 cia has been involved in ukraine for quite some time but especially in this you know maybe they were in ukraine before they were even the cia they were in the ukraine yeah. like right <laughs> at the end of world war 2 before they were even officially the cia exactly I uh, but even even like after Maidan, like you know, the new shift in power, uh, the CIA was on the ground almost instantly, uh, helping to train, uh, train up this a new intelligence service for the post Maidan, uh, you know, political order. And you know, they th there are stories out now that are sort of distancing the Americans from the intelligence activities of Ukraine. Uh, William Arkin, uh, a guy at Newsweek, is a pretty good national security reporter. Uh, he just recently had a story talking about how the CIA is largely in the dark uh, about about what Ukrainians are actually doing. Now, I don't know how much I believe this, uh, but the fact that this is the narrative that's coming out and the fact that this is coming out right as we're seeing this Ukraine did it Nord Stream 2 story and the fact that we're also seeing all these I mean, surprisingly negative for the Western press, negative headlines about uh, the state of the Ukrainian army, the state of the Ukrainian counteroffensive, if you can call it that. Uh, it, it seems to be part of a larger media trend of the U.S., uh, you know, so throwing Ukraine under the bus in preparation for the eventual pullout that has to happen. I mean, there's, there's no way this conflict will go on forever i don't think either side thinks that they can walk a tightrope without blowing each other up accidentally for very long and we've even seen reporting that the biden administration was you know very concerned that this 
this Ukrainian counteroffensive wouldn't go well and that it would have to he would have a hard time maintaining support for uh, the war as it is um, if Ukrainian counteroffensive failed. Uh, so you have all these different narratives going on saying that, oh, well, Ukraine's doing bad. They won't listen to us and we have no idea what they're doing. Uh, and even these Nord Stream stories. I mean, one of the ones is that the, the, the CIA actually begged Ukraine not to blow up the pipeline uh, and that they were ac actually asking them not to not to do this. Uh, I, can, okay. I can almost believe part of that could be true. Like there are people, whoever it was that leaked that to Seymour Hersh is somebody apparently on the National Security Council who probably recognizes that even in terms of imperialism and, and U.S. hegemony, open-ended hegemony, you know, above all, extending forever, that it doesn't, that this is madness. Like, so I could almost believe that the, that there were part people in the CIA who weren't high up and weren't really a part of the real deciders who would have been like, let's try to get out in front of this so that we don't have a disaster, you know? I mean, I, I can halfway believe that, but you know, the the reporting on it, I'm sure, is very credulous about this. It sounds like what you're saying, that they just accept yeah. this at face value. Yeah, well, all the reporting on this is just like uh, some intelligence people told the media uh, in, like, you know, the Netherlands or Germany or the U.S. or something. It's, it's, all, it's all anonymously sourced, uh, just like Seymour Hersh's story, but... I don't see I don't see I don't see Snopes complaining about it. <laughs> right. I mean, you get why Hirsch's source would be anonymous because look at what they did to Snowden or uh Nathan Hale, right? Isn't that the Vault 7 guy's name? Is it Nathan Hale? You know, um, I mean, the oh, guy who's in the high security oh, prison in Colorado is yeah. I believe. Yeah. Da I mean, Daniel, Hale. Daniel Hale. Daniel, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Well, um, this, in this the mainstream is, reporting, you know, I mean, it's it's very hard to believe a lot of it and you know, so they're saying, you know, and I, I, you know, Bryce is insinuating that this is large part of a larger narrative and getting the U.S. getting ready, ready to leave Ukraine with its tail between its legs, um, because, you know, it doesn't. I'm not a military expert, but, you know, it, it looks like there basically is no Ukrainian um, counteroffensive. They're taking horrible losses. So the U.S. is probably getting ready to pivot to China. And this is what the mainstream media is going to help them do. So these, this reporting, you know, that's coming out in basically in the Washington Post, I'm quoting, you know, you know, sourced by the discord leaks. They're saying, oh, Ukraine did it, but but Zelensky didn't know. So and I forget mm -hmm. his name. Someone help me. Who is the um, who's the, the lead general, the, the head of the uh, Ukrainian armed forces? Zelensky. Like, um, it's too many, too many Slavic names have overloaded my brain at yeah, this okay. point. So the head of the Ukrainian armed forces, it's saying that he tasked, you know, that is according to the Washington Post report in the Discord leaks, that that he went over Zelensky's head without telling him, tasked this special, you know, these six people, whatever, how many of there are, Ukrainian special forces unit to sabotage the pipelines. So it says that the head of the army, the head of the, the armed forces tasked his special forces with this, but Zelensky didn't know. So they're they're exonerating Zelensky is what they're doing. And they're doing the same thing because then recently, this is about a month ago maybe, that there was a Wall Street Journal article and the, the finding in the article, the major finding was that, you know, Poland may have been used as an operating base or as a springboard, or at least that Andromeda may have, you know, docked or or or, or they not docked um may have um you know a van loading andromeda may have you know been in been in poland and it, the same thing happened is that the polish current polish prime um 
um, current Polish president, was again exonerated, saying he was unaware of this. So it seems like, you know, we are hmm. getting, you know, the mainstream media is preparing for, you know, for us to throw Ukraine under the bus. And what's interesting to me, because, you know, my understanding, and I don't I certainly know anything about Ukrainian law, but I mean, I, somewhat about U.S. law, if you task, if you're the head of the armed forces and you task a special unit with sabotaging international infrastructure, you know, which is an act of war against Germany and Russia, probably, and certainly an attack on a NATO, a NATO ally. If you do that and you don't tell the commander in chief, is that not treason? Right. I mean, it's that the whole narrative yeah. is very implausible in general. The idea that these guys would have just been freelancing and would have decided to carry this out. Um, it, it seems well, you know, there there is there is an argument for Zelensky not being really, you know, the guy in charge in Ukraine. Whether or not they would consider it treason by not telling him, or if it was just, well, you know, he wouldn't care. He's too busy, uh, you know, touring around the world or begging you, or for you protect money. Him in and, a way, he does. It's not like him knowing helps anything because he's he's not even he's yeah, not even on the yeah, coast. Exactly. There they are, and they're not, not going to be on any coast anywhere probably by the time this is all said and done. Yeah, they protected him and they protected the the Polish um, president. And, you know, you know, that these are just, you know, rogue forces um, operating without the U.S.'s knowledge or permission within the Ukrainian. And we begged him to stop. Yeah, within the Ukrainian armed forces, I agree. You know, it it, it doesn't. It's add very up. similar to the JFK but, angle that tries to blame the mafia, where you're just like, no, you're trying to put it on some ex, some force, some alien force <laughs> that's not the state. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's just not going to fly. It's the, it, it's yeah, n yeah, like nefarious black sheep yeah, or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, if they can, uh, they may end up throwing them. I mean, they're going to have to throw them under the bus. I don't understand, and I've said this pretty from very early on. I don't see how they can keep it from eventually becoming clear to everyone with a, with half a brain that the U.S. has screwed Ukraine so mightily that it's it, it's really right up there with a with Iraq, with Afghanistan as far as U.S. crime scenes. I mean, it, it's it's horrendous. They lost. They've lost more people in this war than the u.s has lost in all the wars we fought since since the end of world war ii you know they basically lost as many as the u.s fought lost in in world war ii which was the deadliest you know non-civil war war in the u.s and they have a much smaller population it, they're going to run out of an army that's what i see is ending this is that they're they're actually they, we can keep sending them weapons but they're going to run out of men and nobody is going to want to put men into that meat grinder you're not going to get americans to go there you're not going to get germans who wants to just go and get slaughtered like it's living World War One style, you know? And then, so they're gonna have to throw them under the bus. Yeah, in a in a uh, a brief period of like candor from the New York Times, they they had an article talking about how well young boys are being you know killed on the line and being replaced by old men, and how this is a trend across the uh, like the entire Ukrainian army. But later they censored their own piece. They changed the word instead of uh, often. It's, uh, they said sometimes. And they changed a lot of other things too in a very shady way. But, uh, but the fact that this was this made it to the actual pages of the Times means that the problem you can probably assume is far worse than they're letting on given their you know, publicly professed public relations role in, on behalf of the Ukrainian government. Um, if they're telling you that things are bad, they're worse. 
Yeah, it must be much, much worse. Uh, Jeffrey Brodsky, would you like to add anything here at the end or, or perhaps tell people where they can find uh, more of your work or what, you have, what, you're, what you're working on in the future? Uh, this is probably a good time yeah. for us to, to wrap up, so maybe you can give us something uh, good here yeah, for the exit. Yeah, I mean, well, so I'm, I'm certainly going to do more reporting. There's more things to say about Nord Stream. Um, there's more things to say about um, our expedition um, to the blast sites. I, you know, I mean, it's a lofty goal and it's somewhat of a, you know, a Panglossian goal, but, you know, I'd like to some, you know, unmask the perpetrator. I'd like to get down to the bottom of this definitively. I know that that is going to be a, in a huge uphill battle, but that's really the goal. But independent of that goal, there are still, I think, um, compelling things to report on um, that I'm working on that, you know, have not been made public before and stay tuned. Um, if people are interested in Nord Stream, I know I am. It's I think it's the greatest geopolitical mystery of the century. Um, so if people are interested in that, I, I hope they can follow my reporting. Um, I'm on Twitter. Um, it's at Jeffrey Brodsky five, the number five, at Jeffrey Brodsky, the number five. And that's how they can keep up with me and, and my work and uh, the latest Nord Stream findings. Very good. And Bryce Green, would you like to leave us with a final message about Nord Stream and how we're gonna how we're gonna get to the bottom of this? All right. Well, all, all these narratives going around, uh, you know, the Ukraine did it, or or Russia, or uh, the U.S. did it. Uh, like I said at the UN, both of these point in the same direction at the United States. Whether or not it was Ukrainian divers or Ukrainian drones or U.S. divers or or whatever. The fact is that the United States is, they know more than they're letting on, which means that they are complicit in the attacks. And that's not anything more than could be, you know, gleaned by a 12-year-old if you gave them the statements from Biden and Newland and, uh, uh, and others. Uh, but that's, that's the fact. And at, at some point, uh, it's important to figure out the truth, whether or not it was the U.S. or Ukraine. Um, but this will be one of those things like, uh, you know, like like bullet angles in the Kennedy assassination, you know, they, at some point you know that they were clearly lying and you know that there was a, an actual cover-up. And so that instructs you about what actually happened uh, in a way that the minutia and the details uh, don't necessarily do. The, the question of what to do about it? Well, in the case of Nord Stream, I mean, guys like us, you know, no normal people, can't really do much about it. It can only inform how they understand the world and their politics. Uh, but if there is going to be something done about this, I mean, it has to come from the bottom up. It has to come from uh, media being unable to, uh, you know, say this stuff with a straight face or say this stuff without having a bunch of pressure on them to, you know, take it seriously. And, you know, I've talked to journalists who uh wrote the whole you know russia did it story and they're like well you know this is the best evidence we have and you point out another thing and it's well uh, that doesn't matter and it's really it's you you don't know whether or not they're deliberately stonewalling you or if they're just true believers uh, but something's got to change if we want to put pressure on our government to stop acting like a rogue state and start acting like a normal damn country in the citizen uh, in the the global citizenry yeah, I mean, I we are ruled in a very top-down fashion. The journalists are a part of this regime, uh, and I mean this in the sort of technical poli-sci definition of regime, where a regime is not just the state, 
it's all of those institutions that determine who has control of the state uh, and so on. And the, America, the, the, the democracy such as it is, these ideas of the free press, these ideas of open and public debate, the, uh, the most democratic thing in the U.S. at this point that actually is a, an arena for some democracy is uh, conversations like this, because at least we're able to speak about what is happening and at least even being able to say, hey, this is an undemocratic regime that we live under is in a way hopefully contributing to what will eventually be a, a, an opening up, some kind of truth and reconciliation because as this empire continues to crumble, which is going to happen, the all the overwhelming power that animates this and its bullshit machine, its mirage machine, its mesmatron, whatever you want to call it, uh, is going to dissipate. And it's because it's it's really when you're not able to do it to rule the world, then the motive isn't really exactly there the same way. And the, the this dollar imperium, uh, in this empire of bullshit that it can finance. This is going to this is going to crumble. So on the one hand, it feels overwhelming to be like, how can this bullshit stand? On the other hand, it's really it's kind of a it's barely standing. It's kind of shuffling along like a zombie at this point. And I think it's uh, th that we're, we're all hammering away at it in a way. And events are, are, are in our time, I think, is on our side because unless they blow the world up and then at that point, whatever, it's all it's all something for future alien archaeologists to study later when they pour over the ruins of, uh, of, of the, of our civilization. So I think it's good that we're out there is what I'm saying. I'm saying don't, it's, it's depressing. It could be depressing, but it's the fact that we're still able to talk about it is, is hopeful. And also the trends are not in the empire's favor. And so we have, we have that to, to hearten us. Um, Jeffrey Brodsky, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Bryce Green, it was great to have you back. Yeah, good to be here. Follow me on Twitter. Follow my Substack. Very good. Uh, gentlemen. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for producing this episode and Mock Orange for providing the music. Great to have Jeffrey and Bryce on the show today. Please do follow them both on Twitter and check out their articles. Links are in the show notes. Bryce was kind enough to mention that American Exception gave him some funding for his trip to the UN. It was very modest support, which charitably Bryce did not say. I would add that uh, we should thank you, all of you subscribers out there, uh, for helping him make the trip to Manhattan. Because you all support this podcast, we can contribute to great things like this. This is just one more way that we can keep on chasing the light.
Till